Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ezra, chapter 4. If you recall, the, the uh, covenant community was responding to the, the foundation of the temple being laid. Some were rejoicing and some were mourning because it just wasn't as great as what it was. But now we come to chapter 4 and it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in the house, and the building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, and Mithradath, and Tabil, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Raham, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Raham, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the, the Persians, the men of Iraq, and the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapper um, deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter they sent to Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the providence beyond the river, send greetings. And, and now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from us to, to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, and toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it, is, it, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the record of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to the kings and provinces, and the seditions was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We made known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, uh, you will ha then have no possession in the providence beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of the associates who live in Samaria, and the rest of the providence beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and it was found that uh, this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it, and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole providence beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until the decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Uh, you may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that for the word that you've given to us. I know I've thanked you for this a number of times in this worship service, but it's, it's so true. Lord, we're so grateful that, that you speak into our lives, Lord, right where we live. The things that, that, that we read that happened thousands of years ago, Lord, are, are just as relevant as if they had been written yesterday. Um, Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and to see. Lord, help us as we're hearing your word to be considering and contemplating our own lives and the way these things are, are lived out. We pray, God, that we would heed your word, that you would encourage our hearts, Lord, and strengthen us to serve you. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, this morning, as uh, we look at our text, uh, one of the things that we're going to see is, is that nothing stirs up more spiritual resistance from the devil than true repentance. Have you ever thought about that? There's nothing that stirs up more spiritual resistance from the devil than true repentance. I don't care if that's a person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't care if it's a, a sinner who's turning back to God or a Christian who is serious about their faith. Um, there's nothing that stirs up more spiritual resistance from the devil than true repentance. A great example of this is the Apostle Paul himself, a man who persecuted the church, a man who uh, was a persecutor of Christ, uh, who ended up on his face before the ascended Christ, and then he came to become a believer. He became a Christian. And then after that, then those very men who were his collaborators, the Bible describes this way in Acts chapter 9, verse 24. It says, these men watched the gates day and night to kill him. To kill him. That's what they thought of the Apostle Paul. Here they were once his friends. They were giving him support. And now they wanted to take his life. You see, after all, the adversary of God sees repentance as desertion. Right? I mean, it's desertion from Satan. And it's a turning to the living God. Until we truly repent, we're safely in the camp of the enemy, blind to the fact that we're doing his bidding. Sort of reminds me when I was involved in evangelism explosion and we would go to people's homes and we would share the gospel. And when someone would come to faith in Christ, we would not only rejoice, but we would take the time to share with them God's means of grace uh, so that they might grow in their faith. Uh, just very briefly explain to them the word of God and prayer, things like that. But we would also talk to them about the enemy, about Satan. And, and one of the illustrations we used was this. We said, look, you know, it's like you've been on a basketball team, but you've been sitting on the bench. And no one ever guards anyone that's sitting on the bench. Right? But now that you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not sitting on the bench anymore. You're in the game. And so now you have someone opposing you. Some, you have someone coming against you. And so you need to expect that. You need to understand that. Don't let that take you off guard. It's sort of like one person put, they said, one step in true repentance unleashes the fury of hell. Let me say that again. One step in true repentance unleashes the fury of hell. And that's what Ezra 4 is about. It's about opposition. It's about persecution. Now, when we think of persecution, we oftentimes think of people being burnt at the stake or people put in prison, and that is persecution. But there's many other forms of persecution as well, and some that are much more subtle, and some that, that come in different forms. And, and I hope that as you've been praying for the persecuted church, and you've been going to the websites we've given you links to, and you, you've read about those countries, you've read the prayer requests, you know, you, you're beginning to get a picture that not every country is persecuted in the same way as other countries. That, that it varies around the world as to how intense that persecution is, but each country is being persecuted. And, and it's the same way uh, in any persecution, that it, it may look differently, it may be more intense, but it's still opposition and persecution nonetheless. And we see that even beginning in verse 1. Look at the way it starts. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard, right? 
It's, this is how the writer describes them right from the beginning. They're adversaries. Now, as you, as you hear that, you, they're, they're, it wouldn't surprise me if there's certain New Testament passages that come to mind. Like, for example, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So, as Christians, we have someone coming against the work of God in our lives. There you have someone seeking to cause you to fall rather than to grow in holiness. You have someone seeking to discourage you in your parenting. You have someone working to make you feel lonely and inadequate, especially in your walk with the Lord, right? Satan is right there to oppose us. But, but it's not just Satan and his minions who, who do these things as well, but even people. I mean, you think about Christ as he's talking with the religious leaders. I mean, just by their title, religious leaders, you, they, that's how they thought of themselves. They're very religious. They're followers of God. They thought a lot of themselves. But Jesus, in talking to them in John chapter 8, verse 44, describes them this way. He said, you are of your father, the devil. Now, could you imagine that? What if we're at the General Assembly this week and somebody stands up and says, you are of your father, the devil. You know, that would probably catch the attention of 2,000 plus people sitting there, right? And, and that's what Jesus did to these religious leaders. Now, of course, the devil is the slanderer. He's the enemy. He's the adversary. And Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desire. And you see, that's, that's really what it comes down to in this world in which we live. There's two kinds of people, only two kinds of people. There, there are the children of God and there are the children of the devil. Just those two. And in these verses, we see both of those um, come to light. The adversaries are opposing not only the, the exiles, but they're opposing God and the adversaries will work for the devil to, to thwart the work that these exiles are doing on behalf of God. Now, one thing I want you to see in this chapter is it's not merely the story of a single experience of persecution or opposition. Actually, it's more than that. It's so easy to read this chapter, and I have to admit, the first time I read it, my mind just sort of filled this in. It, it, it almost comes across as you first read it as the people came, said, let us help you with the temple. They said, no, we're not going to do that. So the, people, the local people said, fine, we'll write to the Persian king. And they wrote to the Persian king. He came back and he said, stop it. And it stopped the work. End of story. That's basically the bottom line. That's how we view this. But, but actually, you have to look at the text very carefully to see what's going on and to notice that actually there's different kings that are being referenced here. And actually, if you'll take your bulletins, on the back of your song sheet, I made another little chart for you because I just know you love charts. I just had such a great response last week about my chart that I just thought I had to do another one. Um, that's not true at all. But uh, anyway, there's a chart there nonetheless. And it lists out all the different Persian kings that are mentioned here in Ezra chapter 4. And, and you'll notice by looking at the dates that actually there were other kings that, that fell between these kings. But these are the major kings. And, and you'll see that in verses uh, 4 and 5, but especially 5, that Cyrus and Darius are, are referred to. Look at verses 4 and 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and, and bribe counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. But then the next verse jumps into the future and it talks about the next major king of Persia um, and it says and in the reign of Ahasuerus in the beginning of the reign they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem okay this was the king he also called Xerxes uh, so was the king during the time of Queen Esther many of you know that account that's that book of the Bible, you've read that, and that's the events that that's the time period they're talking about. And then the, the author here jumps into the future again and talks about another king, Artaxerxes, right, in verse 7. 
and how they wrote a letter to him. Now, Artaxerxes was the, the one who, the, the king of Persia, when Ezra arrives on the scene in uh, Jerusalem in 458. He was also the king in, in whom Nehemiah was the cupbearer to. But, but what you're seeing here is, is there's opposition in, in current day. And what I mean by current day is the current time right after the laying of the foundation of the temple. Um, that there was opposition there in verses 1 through 5. And then the, the author who's writing the book of Ezra, you know, because he's writing it much later, he's looking back at all these other times of opposition that God's people uh, experienced. And he's beginning to list those as well. And say, oh, not only were they opposed when the temple foundation was laid, but later on uh, in Ahasuerus, they were, they were also opposed. And then even a hundred years later, during the times of Artaxerxes, uh, the, the people were being opposed. Uh, the result is, is that what this chapter is showing us is that God's people experienced opposition and persecution, threats and slanders and defeats um, for over a hundred years. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, if you look at this, what you'll see is that opposition is a constant theme in the book of Ezra in Nehemiah, at least for the remainder of the book of Ezra. And for the beginning part of Nehemiah, you're going to see that God's people are constantly being opposed in the midst of the work that God had given them to do. Right? And, and, and when, you, when you look at Old Testament uh, narratives or Old Testament stories, kids, what you find is oftentimes those Old Testament narratives give us an example of New Testament truths. And, and the, the author of Ezra and Nehemiah is gathering together these events to sort of uh, illustrate what Paul lays out in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, and that is this, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's the reality. If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be opposed. You're going to be uh, persecuted. Um, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's an indication really that the kingdom of God is built within enemy-occupied territory. Now we need, to, we need to think that way, brothers and sisters. In America, we have experienced peace for so long that that doesn't make sense to us. The church has been prominent. Christ has been exalted. And there's really not been tons of, of pushback or opposition. In more recent times, that's changing. But the reality is, is that the Bible has sort of lays out the idea that America is sort of an oddity. That's not the norm. That the norm is, is that the church is being established and built within enemy-occupied territory. Um, and so we as Christians need to understand how it is that Satan oftentimes works when he opposes his church and what that looks like and be prepared for that. So the first thing I want us to see is we look at sort of the tactics of these local people in opposing God's work is this. The first thing they did was they tempted them. They tempted them. Look at verse 2. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been or sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So basically these local people were descendants of the people that when Assyria came in, and captured Israel, the northern kingdom, what, what they did was is they took people from the Assyrian kingdom and they brought them and they imported them into uh, Israel. Then they took people from Israel and they brought them to Assyria. And that was a very common practice amongst kings of that day because what you ended up doing is, is intermarrying and intermixing and you begin to water down and you sort of get rid of pockets of rebellion and things like that. And so that's what they did. And they said, we actually are the descendants of people who did that. We were sort of, the, you know, our family was the newcomers that intermingled and intermarried with, with some of the Jews who were left behind. And, and you can read more about that in 2 Kings 17. But what happened was, the result of that was, is a very mixed people. 
Um, and uh, actually, they became known as the Samaritans. Now, if, if you know much about the Samaritans from the New Testament, light bulbs are clicking on. You're going, oh, no wonder the Jews had such a problem with the Samaritans. It wasn't because of their, their nationality or anything, but, but the people who had come in and sort of intermarried and stuff, these were people who manipulated the truths of God's word to accommodate their religious views. They were bringing their religion and their practices from Assyria, and they brought them to Israel, and then they applied them to the people's local worship of God. And so they began to change the way that God was worshipped and to manipulate that. Now, think about Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, right? And they talked about worship. And Jesus was talking about how the Jews worship correctly, not, not the Samaritans. And, and all of a sudden it begins to make sense. But, but understand that, that these adversaries of God's people didn't immediately launch into an all-out attack against the efforts of the Jews to rebuild the temple. Their first tactic was to try to tempt the people, to encourage ecumenicism. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, it's that practice of trying to unify different groups at the expense of truth, right? Let's do away with truth. Let's get along. I mean, we see it today in bumper stickers like coexist. You know, we see it today as we hear in our culture just sort of buzzing around. We all need to get along. We need to, to be on the same page. We need to, you know, not be, you know, you need to not stand out. You need to blend in with the status quo and things like that. All these kind of ideas are happening in our culture today. But anyway, the way that it existed here is they wanted to join in the building of the temple. And they basically said, look, we're Jewish too. We worship the same God. We do it a little bit differently, but we're all the same. Now, for the Jews, they could easily hear this and they could think, wow, we're, being, we're getting an offer to help build the temple. This is great. And it's not going to cost us anything. Not only that, but they claim to have the same God and they, they want to unite with us in worship. And, uh, of course, a group of returning exiles, that would certainly be great to have some friends and stuff. So, you know, you could imagine how that would be appealing. And, and you could almost imagine their reasoning to be something like this. Well, we won't have to give anything up. You know, they're not forcing to change us. They, they aren't even asking for any payment or exchangement of services. They just want to help. And so, indeed, it was probably very tempting at first for the Jews to think, you know, if we accept this, then we have a lot to gain. But if, but if we reject it, then we're going to remain this small, outnumbered group of people. They're going to feel that sense of being uh, ridiculed and outcast. So you would think that there would be a struggle here. But praise God, uh, you know, although uh, this might look very appealing, it was basically the bait that hid the trap. Right? There's, a, there's a trap in their offer to help. And Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the other leaders saw that. We see it in verse 3. They said, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, at first you might hear that and you might think, my goodness, that's harsh. You know, or that's very unloving. But, but it shows that these returning exiles had a true fear of God, and they sought to be a holy nation, a peculiar people. They were the Lord's people, as Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2 talks about. You see, God had commanded His people not to, to, to be like the nations around them, not to join the other nations around them in the things that they do. And, and so Zerubbabel and the others were seeking to do that. What got God's people in trouble in the first place and cast into exile was they kept compromising. They kept joining the nations and, and giving in to this call for unity. And let's just all get along. Let's intermarry. Let's, let's trade our children with each other in marriage and stuff. Things that God had strictly forbidden. And as a result of that, they found themselves in rebellion. But now Zerubbabel and God's people says, no, we're going to stand firm on this. And we're going to do what God says. Now, Something, this isn't in the text, but, but it sort of is. I mean, think about it for a moment. Here are people who have said, 
We are the descendants of those who have been imported into Israel. If they truly were followers of God, then why did they not seek to rebuild the altar and the temple of the Lord? You see, they did worship God. It says that they made sacrifices, but they did it according to their own devices. They didn't do it according to the way that God had commanded. And they had no interest in doing that until these exiles showed up. And so there's a sense in which, you know, they're, they're uh, sort of showing their true colors. And then in verse 4, they do. They come right out and they show their true colors. That they really didn't care about the worship of God. They only wanted what they wanted. Now, brothers and sisters, as, as you think about this, there's probably all kinds of things that are going through your mind as you, as you hear this. And you're thinking, my goodness, this, just, this so applies to our culture today, does it not? This is, this is like what we, where we live today is in this kind of place. I mean, you have Christians who, who are having interfaith services with Jews and Muslims, maybe with Jehovah Witnesses. You, you have others who believe that Reformed and Roman Catholic churches share the same essential doctrine of salvation. And ecumenism, it's, with its emphasis on unity and strength, is, is a real temptation for our young people. Our young people hear that and they're like, yes, we need to get along. Why, why, are we, why do we stand against these things? Why do we not do these other things over here? And, and, you, and you have the, the young people who are struggling with that. And I just want to say to you, to parents, to Sunday school teachers, to others, don't just think that your kids are buying into the things that the church teaches. Make sure that you talk about these nuances and the specifics of how we differ with people so that they can understand uh, what is going on today. Many today in institutions of higher learning are very skilled at either erasing or, or hiding important distinctions and sort of painting this vision of this unified utopia, uh, even though this unified utopia is just a mirage. It's not something that's real. Because anytime you get two worldviews that clash with one another, you know, it's not like we can all just get along. You have to give up your worldview, or at least part of your worldview, in order to coexist with other people. So the things that they're selling are not true. It's not even possible. And so what it really requires, what they're really asking is that you stop being the way that you are and believe what I want, that we might get along. And we need to, to understand that and understand the... The, the temptation that can be to our young people and encourage them and prepare them for such things. We need the insight and the courage of Jeshua and Zerubbabel to, to remain separate when God's word demands it. I'm not, this is not a call for us to be separate from the world. We can't leave the world, but it is a call to holiness and a call to follow the Lord and to follow his word very specifically and very carefully and very precisely when the world is pushing back and asking us to be more general and specific. I think it's interesting, you know, Christ, we need his wisdom. He's, he's the one who is tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. So we need his wisdom. And I, I think it's interesting that when he was tempted by Satan to worship um, someone other than to worship Satan as, a, as opposed to God, Christ was very, very decisive in what he said. He didn't say, well, Satan, let's talk about this. Let's just sort of discuss this and see, what did Jesus say? Be gone, Satan! Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see, he knew God's word. He knew what God prescribed. And so we need to be on guard against wolves in sheep's clothing who still seek to devour the church of God today. Many will approach the church with an olive branch and they're seeking to be united in some cause and, and say, well, we believe in the same God. But brothers and sisters, as professing children of God, we must stand firm on the word of God, even if that means we might be ridiculed and if we might be called intolerant. The second thing that we see uh, here is uh, in terms of opposition is just outright opposition. 
they sort of started out with temptation, with the sense of let's just sort of all be together in unity and stuff. But now there's just outright opposition. You, you see the Samaritans, when, they, when the Jews refused uh, to allow them to be part of the work, all the niceties were gone. Uh, they didn't bother to appear as angels of light anymore. Instead, they showed their, their true colors. They were no longer wolves in sheep's clothing. They were just outright wolves with sharp teeth and, and everything. And the enemies began waging both spiritual and psychological warfare against God's people. And according to verses 4 and 5, we see three very powerful weapons that they were using against God's people. First of all, discouragement. Second of all, fear. And third of all, political pressure. Uh, discouragement, fear, and political pressure. Uh, the first two, discouragement and fear, I mean, discouragement is a very powerful weapon. And, uh, you know, they understood that. They understood that it could be very debilitating uh, to be discouraged. And, and so they began to attack them. And their hope was is that, that the Jews would lose confidence and their focus on the work that God had given them to do. And isn't that what uh, discouragement does to us? It causes us to lose our focus and to take our eyes off, off of God and upon, off the work that he is doing. But also closely related to that is fear. You know, they sought to terrify the Jews or to make them anxious. And, and fear is a very difficult thing to combat. Sort of reminds me of, uh, of the story in uh, 2 Kings chapter 18 when uh, Rabshakeh um, came before, he was the general of the Assyrian army, and he came to Jerusalem during the time of Hezekiah, and he was going to take over Jerusalem. And so he stood out there and he spoke, and basically, I don't know what you call it today, in my day and time they call it smack talk, you know, just sort of like, all right, you know, you think you're going to trust your God, and you think he's going to help you, but let me just tell you the way this is going to go down, and he's just sort of, you know, laying it out there, and of course, you know, he has this big army to back up this smack talk, so, you know, it's a little intimidating, and not only that, but to make matters worse, this king is actually speaking in the language of the people of Jerusalem, so everybody can understand it, not just the, uh, the officials who came out to meet this general. As a matter of fact, uh, we read in 2 Kings 18, that, that this uh, envoy of uh, leaders from Jerusalem that came out to meet with the general, they said, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Don't speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Because they knew that, that his talk would cause them to be fearful, and that was a very powerful weapon. And so, brothers and sisters, we can, we can feel that, that opposition against the world as they do things that cause us to be discouraged or disheartened and to even be fearful. Especially if you're a parent this day or even a grandparent and you think about your kids growing up in the times in which we live and the things that they're gonna face uh, regarding their faith, it could cause you to be very discouraged and to think, Lord, is there any hope? But you know, whenever we're tempted to fear and to be discouraged, we, we need to remember uh, the words of David. Uh, let me give you a verse to write down. Psalm 56.3. Psalm 56.3. It's a very simple verse. But this is what David says. He goes, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Psalm 56.3. Now, do you hear what he's saying? When I'm afraid, when I'm experiencing those circumstances that are causing me to fear, I will put my trust in the Lord. Now, the circumstances to fear are still there. Nothing's changed. But regardless, even in the midst of that, David has chosen, even in the face of that opposition, to put his trust in the Lord, to rest in the Lord. And it is in those times, as we're resting in the Lord, that that fear begins to lose its grip on us. David said in Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light. Right? The Lord is my light. He's the one that shines the way. He's the one that shows me where to go. He's the one that shows me what's truth. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the one who saves me from those times in which I need to be saved. Those 
times in which I'm, that the circumstances I'm in are beyond myself. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. He's the one who protects me. He's the one who guards me even when I'm in the midst of those circumstances. The circumstances don't go away, but I have some sense of protection as the Lord is my stronghold. He's the one I can lean on. David says, the Lord is my stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You see, when hope are disappointed and life is hard, it's easy to slip into discouragement and fear. And yet if we really believe that the Lord is sovereign and that he works all things together for good, then why should we be disheartened and afraid? You see, if we die, we go to be with him. So even if someone were to take our life, we would go to be with the Lord, the one that we love so much. Now the only, the only reason I can think, I shouldn't say the only reason, but one reason I think that could be possible, um, I think, uh, as far as like going, of, of Christians maybe not being afraid of death, but I see sometimes Christians, um, there's not that zeal to be with the Lord. And I think what I'm trying to say, I'm sort of stumbling over my words, please forgive me, but I guess I'm saying it's so easy for us to say that we love Jesus, but the question is, do we really love Jesus? Do we love Jesus so much that we just want to be with him? And so when we hear something as awful as death is, and death is not natural, it is an awful thing. Even when we hear that, we are excited though, because at least it means we get to be with Jesus face to face. But I wonder sometimes as Christians, that's not maybe how we function. Because the reality might be that maybe Jesus is not our first love. Maybe we say we love him, but maybe our hearts have been set upon other things. Maybe we have given ourselves over to other loves. But if we love the Lord, then if we die, we go to be with him. And if we live, then we get to serve him in whatever way he wants us to. Now, we, we may be involved in things, as, as we talked about last week, Zechariah 4.10 in the day of small things. But we need to understand as God's children that we belong to a kingdom that's like a mustard seed. It starts out small, but it grows large. And God is doing a mighty work, even though it might seem very small from our vantage point and where, where we're involved, God is doing something great and he's doing something mighty. And we may not see the fruits of our labors during our lives, but if we labor in the Lord, we know that our labor is not in vain. And that brings me to the, the, the third point of this, and that's the political pressure. Uh, we see in verse 5 that they bribe the counselors and the advisors to frustrate their purpose through political means. Uh, their goal was nothing less than to completely ending the Jewish building activity. So they hired people, a lot like Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel. And, and these enemies uh, used hired counselors against the Jews all the days of Cyrus, even to the days of Darius. And then we see in verse 6, they continued their opposition and their political pressure uh, with future kings. In verse 6 and verse 7, now, even writing a letter to Artaxerxes, you know, calling the people of God rebellious and Jerusalem a wicked city in verse 12. Um, and it's true that, that, that they were uh, rebellious people but who they rebelled against the most was not the Persian kings but the God of Israel is the one that they rebelled against and it was because of that rebellion that Jerusalem lied in ruins but anyway the letter achieved its goal and verse 21 we read that therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city not be rebuilt you notice it's not talking about the temple the temple had already been rebuilt in 516 BC. But by this time, it's the city not be rebuilt until a decree is made. And everything had to come to a grinding halt. Now, uh, the enemies of God loves to use political pressure against the cause of Christ. And I don't need to tell you that. That's what we're experiencing today in our culture. We're seeing more and more legislation and things that 
go against Christ and, and his church that further other agendas. Um, but that's always been the case, brothers and sisters. I mean, a case in point, Paul and Silas were taken before the magistrate. Paul was dragged before the magistrate. There's Daniel was dragged before the magistrate because he prayed. You know, all these cases in which we see um, believers being pulled before the magistrate to stop them in their worship of God. But the, the other thing we need to see is that repeatedly through Scripture, God says that He controls all things, even the hearts of the rulers. And we must not be discouraged. It, it might look as though human governments are able to frustrate God's causes, but they cannot. I mean, think about um, Paul as he's in prison and he's writing to the Philippians. And this is what he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I'm in chains. I'm in prison. And you might be thinking, wow, nobody's out there telling people the gospel. But I want you to know it's happening. I'm seeing people come in faith in Jesus Christ as I'm here in chains because God is still doing his work. You see, Christians, we must be prepared for a long, drawn-out battle with our enemy. There's no quick strategy. Only uh, after God um, allows us to cross that river of death, the Jordan River, will he unbuckle our armor and he'll put on us the victor's robe. But until that time, we are involved in a battle. And here again, as I said before, I just want to say, uh, I want to encourage parents, uh, make sure your kids understand that. You know, I, I love the fact that you guys are catechizing your kids. You're, you're teaching them Hebrew, Greek, Latin. You're, you know, you're just doing all this other stuff. You know, that you're teaching them poems. And I know that because the kids come and tell me, Pastor Rick, I memorize this. You want to hear this? And, and all of those things are great. But the most important thing is that our kids love the Lord Jesus Christ. That they love him. Because you see, God has made us all as worshipers. And if we don't love Jesus, we will have to love something. And so we will give our hearts to something else. If you just take the heart and make it void of any love, it will seek out to love something. And if it's not God, then we become idolaters. And so it's important that we're, we're teaching our kids to love the Lord so that they might stand in the face of opposition. Now, what's interesting is, is as you come to the end of our text in verse 24, verse 24, uh, uh, excuse me, verses 7 through 23 are talking about the future in Artaxerxes. And then verse 24 brings us back to Cyrus and Darius. And it said... That, it's, that the work stopped because of that, right? And, and in many ways, it's sort of a discouraging place to stop. But in another sense, it's an encouragement because it reminds us in our temptations and in our trials and in our oppositions that we face that we're not alone, that we're going through the very thing that every Christian faces. And so we ought to be thankful that the Bible is at least honest and lays out sort of the struggles that Christian has and so, so many times we can relate to those in Scripture who face temptations and experience defeat. Many of us might be able to relate to the sad note on which the chapter ends when it says, then the work of the house of God that's in Jerusalem stopped. And we might feel that this morning. We might feel that as we think about the conversations that happened at work and how someone was sort of, you know, espousing a gay pride month and they were sort of speaking about those things and putting down the narrow-mindedness of, of Christians and, and they were speaking against the name of God and we sort of gave acknowledgement to that as we just stood there in our silence. And we see the opposition that's being made and we do nothing. We just join in because we don't want people to think poorly of us. And we're wrestling with that. And that may be where we're here this morning and we can identify that and we're, we're saying, oh God. But notice that verse 24 doesn't stop there. It goes on and it says, it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
You see, we have to understand that the story's not over with. God's not done working through his people. The temple was rebuilt. And this account should remind us of God's guiding hand over his people. It is God who gives us wisdom and temptation and helps us persevere through many of the trials and the opposition. And yes, we may fail at times, but it's not over in what God is doing in us. The enemy will not have the last word. Christ will be the final victor. Uh, Jesus said of another temple, the temple of his body, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, what? I will raise it up. And he did exactly that. And that's our hope, brothers and sisters, in the midst of the opposition and the persecution that we face, that Christ is with us and he is working through us. So this morning, just as I close, I just want to ask, what discouragements are you facing today from the world and the devil and even your own flesh? And how do these verses challenge you this morning? How do they encourage you this morning? How do they help you, like David, say, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you? Or maybe you can relate more to the letter that was written to Artaxerxes, um, where God's people were being slandered and false accusations were being made against them. How should you respond when people bring false accusations against you? When they're ridiculing you and, and saying all sorts of evil against you, It's important this morning, brothers and sisters, we consider these things. And if you go, well, Pastor Rick, I'm, I'm not really encountering that right now. I'm not struggling with any kind of opposition or persecution. Well, that's fine. But you have brothers and sisters around the world who are. And so pray for them. Spend some time this afternoon. Pray for the persecuted church. Pray that the Lord would give them comfort and courage. And he would convict their enemies of their sin and their need of Jesus Christ. But if you're here this morning and you are feeling that opposition and, and, you, and you're wrestling with that, then I encourage you just to slowly read a couple of passages from Matthew. Read Matthew 16, 18. Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. No matter what opposition we're feeling, no matter what persecution we're experiencing, there is nothing and I mean nothing that will stand against it. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and he said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. All authority. Everything has been placed under his feet as he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he rules over all things for the sake of his church. All those things, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He doesn't want us just to stand firm in the midst of opposition. He wants us to move forward in the face of opposition. That we are people who make disciples and see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. How could these passages encourage you this morning? And so brothers and sisters, consider these things for yourself, but also for others as well. Maybe you know someone who's involved in the work of the Lord, and I don't mean it has to be a pastor or missionary. It could be a housewife who's struggling in training her children of the things of the Lord. Not that she doesn't want to do that, but she just sees the opposition that's out there and she's so disheartened and so discouraged. And even though they homeschool their kids and they do all these things that they think are right, they still hear their kids come home from playing with their, with their friends and talking about these things that just dishonor the Lord. And she is struggling. Could you pray for her? Or maybe you know a teacher who teaches in a public school and they're so disheartened over the things that they see. And they just don't know if they could go on. Could you pray for that person? Could you write them a note of encouragement? Because as Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Amen.
Let's bow our heads and meditate on God's Word this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray as we encounter opposition and persecution for our faith. Lord, in those times, sometimes we can see our hearts more clearly than we really want to. And, and, and what is there sometimes, Lord, is fear. And sometimes what is there is discouragement. What is, sometimes there is a, is a desire to please other people rather than loving you and being pleased and delighted in you. Forgive us, God, for our sins. But we pray that you would strengthen us as your people. That you would cause us to, to love you, Lord, uh, with a love that, that is immovable. Lord, that a love that can stand in the face of opposition like Zerubbabel did and Jeshua and, and the other leaders of Israel. May we stand firm, Lord, uh, and may you work through your church, through your people, dear God. We pray for our young people in the face of the culture in which they are growing up. And we pray, God, that they would have ears to hear the truth of your word and to know you and to love you, Lord, even from a very young age. I pray for the parents and the Sunday school teachers and others in the church who are uh, encouraging and training and equipping these young people. Lord, help us to be faithful, not to be fearful of what our kids are growing up under, but Lord, just to be faithful, to turn them over to you and pray for the work of your spirit in their hearts that they might grow up to stand firm, to be a mighty army to stand, um, to do your work, just like these exiles did. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.